city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. You know, one of the most pressing problems that we have in the law enforcement community is the application of force, especially lethal force. And currently, throughout the United States, one of the most serious issues that law enforcement officers are being forced to deal with is the application of deadly force by those people that choreograph what I refer to as the death act, and that is suicide by cop, or SBC. Various studies throughout the United States have documented that somewhere between 20 and 30% or more of all officer-involved shootings involve some aspect of an individual presenting with suicidal ideations that transition to suicide by cop. And who better to discuss this issue with me is forensic psychologist and board-certified Dr. Joni Johnston. Joni, welcome to A Thread of Evidence. I'm so happy that you and I can get together today to discuss this critical issue in law enforcement. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, let's get right down to it, Joni. Uh, This is both in our wheelhouse. You see it from the position of operational or forensic psychologist, and I see it as a forensic criminologist that has to deal with officer-involved shootings. Why don't you go ahead and let's do a little background. First, sort of let's define what we're talking about when we refer to as SBC. Well, suicide by cop basically just means a person wants to die, but they don't want to kill themselves. So what they do instead is they put themselves in a position where a police officer is forced to shoot them. And this could range from a suicidal person who'll point an empty gun at the police because they know that or they think that the police will shoot back in self-defense. Or at the other other end of that would be somebody who has a loaded gun and they've decided to kill as many police officers as possible before they die. Well, that that's a great way of putting it together. So I guess, should we just start with uh, suicidology and suicidal ideations and what are the things that make people suicidal? And then let's talk about why do they pick this particular method of death? Yeah, and it's interesting because there are some similarities among many people who are suicidal, and then there are some unique aspects of individuals who choose this particular method of suicide. So we know, for example, that men are more likely to commit suicide than women, um, particularly men who have a psychiatric disorder such as chronic depression or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, substance use disorder. Um, so they have you have this backdrop of somebody who has these problems, and then oftentimes they have poor coping skills, and then they encounter some kind of adverse life event 
or recent stressor. And that kind of becomes a perfect storm for that person deciding enough is enough. It's time for me to check out. Well, you know, both of us are involved in suicide risk assessments, uh, what we refer to in our forensic community as SRAs. And let's talk a little bit, and you did, you mentioned a few of those things. Let's talk about what the profile of a person is, or what are some of the things that we sort of look for and we check off on our SRA that, that gives us indications forensically that the person is more likely suicidal than not. Well, you look at two things. You look at, first of all, risk factors, and then you look at protective factors. So the risk factors might be like things like, has a person ever attempted suicide before? Has the person been telling individuals they're thinking about suicide? Have they been giving away possessions? Have they been making a will? Does this person have a history of alcohol or drug use? Does this person have a history of domestic violence? Um, Does this person have access to guns? So there's a whole checklist of things that we can look at in terms of evaluating not only is this person suicidal, but how likely is this person to act on those ideas? No, you're absolutely correct. For instance, we see... uh, a significant amount, I believe it's way up into the 90 percentile of people who are suicidal, let alone people that are SBC intent, uh, are, are substance abusers. And as you said, there are some critical factors that we can look at, uh, such as, uh, again, have they expressed any, any notion uh, verbally in writing or by behavior that they might be suicidal? Uh, the precipitating event to me, is critical in my investigation of officer-involved shootings. And and you mentioned a recent life stressor. So that's what I refer to when I write reports as a precipitating event. What could some of those things be, Joni? You know, what I see so much of the time is some kind of interpersonal dispute or loss. I think that is the number one, I think, event that will send somebody who already has this history kind of over the edge. And then we see other kind of losses, a job loss, some kind of status or self-esteem loss, but it typically does revolve around some significant change. A person's been diagnosed with a um, um, serious medical illness. So it's some kind of loss that really does tend to be this triggering event. And, you know, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, We see that a lot, especially recent estrangements, uh, whether it's from a domestic partner or the person has been ostracized from their family. I see a lot uh, where the person has uh, a mental health disorder, uh, suffering some sort of uh, mental incapacity. And also they become estranged from their family because they've been in a lot of trouble before. They have a significant substance abuse Uh, problem. And the family who's been trying everything but intervention, talking, trying to, you know, get this person to, uh, to relax and to, uh, you know, be a part of that family, that they reach a time where sometimes they've just had enough. And this is what kind of one of many things that will take that, that person, you know, over the edge. But you know, here is something that I think our uh, forensic team, uh, members and our audience would like to know about. There are so many different ways of committing suicide. And why don't you just do it? Why do you have to draw the police 
into it. And I thought that maybe you and I could have a conversation about that. Why use this method of suicide as the officers being your mechanism of death? You know, it really is such a tragic and really unfair situation when you think about it for police officers to have somebody do that. And I've actually been involved in cases where a person was absolutely bent on committing suicide this way, and they'd actually left apologies right. in their you know, purse or their wallet or whatever. But when we look at what people do tend to choose suicide by cop versus other forms of suicide, really two things stand out. One is about 60% of these individuals have some kind of criminal history. So they've had prior prior experiences or encounters or some familiarity with law enforcement agencies. They may have uh, minor criminal offenses. So they have some familiarity and they think, okay, I know how to provoke this individual. I know what to do. I'm familiar with the police. Sometimes I have bad feelings toward the police. So I'm. I, this is why I'm choosing this particular means of, of killing myself. The other factor that we see sometimes is kind of a religious beliefs. In other words, the person just feels like, I can't kill myself. I would go to hell. I would, you know, it just is so contrary to everything I believe spiritually. But somehow, if I provoke someone else into killing me, it somehow makes it more okay. You know, that's very interesting that you bring that up, because I find that to be a truism, especially in Catholicism, where the act of suicide is considered to be a mortal sin. And anybody that is familiar with Catholicism knows that if you commit a mortal sin and you are unforgiven, uh, you have not sought absolution. And obviously, if you end up being killed in in a you know, officer-involved shooting, you can't seek, you know, the confessional and absolution. So in your mind, you're definitely going to hell because it's an unforgivable sin at that point. But uh, I also find that insurance tends to be a reason too. So if you are are killed and you have an insurance policy uh, that pays off uh, sometimes double for uh, for death, especially a violent death, albeit not at your own hands, there is an economic incentive for you to leave for your family. Because if you have a straight insurance policy and you commit suicide, the insurance policy doesn't pay out. That is such an excellent point because you're right. Many insurance policies have two-year suicide clauses. Correct. So if you have somebody who's in a crisis then you're absolutely right, another incentive for getting somebody else to do it for you. And you know, it's interesting because that's why we see single vehicle accidents with no skids proximate to the point of impact. So they just, you know, go off the road and and deliberately run into a a giant overpass, uh, you know, uh, abutment. And uh, they killed themselves this way. But the the whole issue of suicide by cop, I find, like you said, extremely tragic and very selfish because you are, you know, police officers never go to work, you know, contrary to what people like Black Lives Matter say or what some, some politicians or activist groups try to represent. 
And I wrote about this in my my book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. Police officers don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I think I'm going to go out and kill somebody today. The last thing that police officers ever want to do is take someone's life. And when you tell me, and I actually had a case like this, and now I'm glad to hear that you had a case like this, where people leave behind apologies to the officers that actually killed them, that is tragic because the police officer has to live with that for the rest of his life. And that is so true. And there really are multiple victims when this happens. Um, we had a really tragic situation um, in 2017 where a 15-year-old high school student literally called 911, said he needed somebody to come out and check on this student who was in the middle of the night wandering around this local high school, seemed to be dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. You see where I'm going with this, I'm mm-hmm. sure. So the police come out, this 15-year-old uh, child who, as it turns out, was the one who actually made this phone call to begin with, pulls out a BB gun, um, points it at this op- these officers who don't shoot, And they're trying their best to talk this kid down. He begins to walk toward them. He's continuing to wave it around. And they ultimately have little choice but to shoot him. And it was extremely traumatic for the officers involved as well as the family. Um, but but one, I guess there's a couple of takeaways there. One is if someone is absolutely determined to die this way, they are going to find a way to do it. The other part of that is you know, is there are differences in this case where you have a, a 15-year-old kid who's decided, uh, written a suicide note out, et cetera, et cetera, and then other situations where somebody might be intoxicated, um, mentally ill, delusional, and that may not necessarily be a suicide by cop, at least by design. It can turn out to be that way. Um, so it's a pretty complex issue. No, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, in in our next segment, I absolutely want to go into some case studies that you and I have both worked. You know, it's interesting when I look at at suicidality, I find that suicides come in two different classifications. Number one, a planned suicide event where the person has taken time to choreograph however they're going to die. In this case, we're talking about suicide by cop. And then the spontaneous suicide, where in a a moment, and literally a moment of severe desperation, the person decides, well, to hell with it. And I'm just going to go out in a blaze of glory. And I've seen this happen with our people with significant criminal histories. In other words, lifelong criminals that commit a crime such as maybe a bank robbery or some other type of violent crime, uh, maybe even a, a, a carjacking, and then the police uh, find them and they take up a pursuit with them, and the person all of a sudden has figured out, oh, wait, there's no way out. I'm a third striker. I'm going to go to prison maybe for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to go out on a blaze of glory. Does that sound fairly familiar with what you're used to? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when you look at the statistics, between 17 and 30 percent of individuals who engage in the suicide by cop actually pre-plan this event. So you're right. The majority of these individuals aren't. it's not planned. 
it's this kind of impulsive, the situation is happening, it seems unbearable to me, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to check out. And you know, that's, uh, that's exactly the way I, I see it going down. You know, when we talk about uh, the SBC and, and what they do to precipitate the encounter with the police department, that is so important. Uh, because I know you and I are both involved in training. Uh, I'm involved in training police on how to respond to suicide by cop intent individuals. And I find when I do my training that it starts right with the dispatchers and getting them properly trained so they can understand the type of calls for service that you're going to get. And Joni, as you well know, some of those calls for service are self-initiated by the person intent on having the police uh, kill them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And first of all, we do see a huge difference in who initiates a 911 call in an SBC case versus other cases. So for example, um, about 7% of individuals who are not suicidal will call, I'm sorry, about 7% of individuals who are intent on killing themselves will call, but 41% of family members will call and be concerned about that, which is significantly, like three times higher than the number of 911 calls you get from family and friends for other kind of cases. And that can be especially tragic when you have somebody who's calling and saying, my husband, my brother, my sister is off for medication. She's delusional. He thinks that there's a conspiracy against him. Um, I need some help. And then the police come out and they're faced with this very difficult situation and, and, and someone ends up dying. That's exactly what I see. And and when the calls come out, let's talk about the ones just briefly for a second uh, before we take our break. And that is the individual who's intent on committing suicide calling the dispatcher on the 911 emergency line and making up a big story uh, that he's got weapons, he's going to kill people, and what he is intending to do in my mind, is get a lot of police officers responding to the scene. And the way that formula works in my mind when I do my forensic reports is more officers equal more guns coming to the scene equal more bullets being fired by the officers at the scene at this individual. And I refer to that as the certainty of lethality. When we come back, Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified forensic psychologist, and I are going to talk about some case studies. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli on A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. 
Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. I'm back with forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnston. And Joni, when we left off, we were talking about the certainty of lethality and I promised the audience we would get into some cases that you and I worked. Why don't you tell us about one where actually the suicide intent individual actually survived his encounter with police? Yeah, this was a really, really heartening story. It was a case out of Baltimore. We had an officer named Angel Villarongo who encountered a man who said his name was Philip. And he basically had a knife and he threatened the police officer. And then he then asked officers to what he called do their job and shoot him. And instead of responding to that, um, Villaranga began talking to the man. He was far enough away where there wasn't an immediate threat because, of course, safety is always number one. But he began talking to the man, establishing rapport with him, using a calm voice. And he didn't, um, the man didn't approach him or escalate things. And neither did Villaranga. And interestingly enough, he talked to this man. And after about five minutes, the man put his knife down and was taken to the hospital for treatment. And what's interesting about this is that later on in talking to the police officer, he said, one of the things that helped him is that when he was 13 years old, he had had the same situation happen with his own father, who was going to jump off the roof. And he was, here's his kid. And the, the police department actually asked him at 13 to go up and talk to his dad, because they didn't want his dad to see his mom because they were in a conflict and they thought that might make him jump. And so he actually at 13, talked his father into coming down from this roof and was able to use these same strategies in talking to this stranger who he didn't know and convincing him by his de-escalation strategies into putting the knife down and going to get treatment. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah, what's incredible is a couple of things. You know, one of the things that I see that that happens in cases uh, of officer-involved shootings, and anytime any type of person is a mentally disordered person is involved uh it's it's very hard for the officers not to become emotionally captured with that individual you know they might be yelling meaning the individual is yelling uh he might be going through what we refer to as maybe some sort of psychomedical emergency maybe a a, uh, a agitated chaotic event be under the influence of drugs and you know you mentioned something that is very classic in the cases that I have uh, about 80 percent of which have some sort of mental disorder component and that is people off their meds so I see it a couple of different ways either uh, they're not taking meds when they need to be taking meds or they're off their meds or they're self-medicating, meaning they're using, you know, drugs such like such as methamphetamine or maybe synthetic cannabinoids, and they're they're unstable. 
And then they get the police jacked up, and the either the police or the individual compresses both time and distance. In other words, they move quickly at the police officer suddenly, and that compresses distance, which automatically compresses time, and then we, we have a situation. We have, a, we have an officer-involved shooting, and once those bullets leave that gun, there's no way in the world you're going to bring those bullets back in through the muzzle of that gun. That's right. And I think a couple things, I mean, I think police officers have so many challenges when they're dealing with the mentally ill. First of all, we all know how hard it is to make that decision about when to shoot anyway. And we also know that if you look at the research by the FBI, that interactions with individuals with mental illness are more likely to result in the use of police force for a number of different reasons. And I think three of them, number one is not knowing how to handle the situation. So lack of training about how do you do this? How do you de-escalate situations? How do you evaluate um, and develop a decision model that's going to help you balance empathy with safety? which is always a challenge in any situation. So this lack of training, number two, and you've already alluded to this, is that a lot of times police officers going out, they don't have the information that they need. Um, it's really imperative that 911 call operators are able to effectively obtain information um, that they can talk to these police officers about. As we mentioned already, over 40% of 911 calls regarding the mentally ill to police officers are by family members or friends that are calling for help. And they have oftentimes a rich amount of knowledge about the mental health of this person and the information they provide, including whether it's insights about triggers or diagnoses or medication, can actually help police de-escalate the situation. So we have to be in partnership with our 911 operators and make sure they get the information they need. And then the third part, I think, challenge that you've also alluded to is that, you know, police officers are trained to come in fast and hard a lot of times. They have to establish authority in these dangerous situations. And yet when you're dealing with somebody who's confused, who's psychotic, who's under the influence of uh, drugs or alcohol, this can be the worst approach when you're dealing with that person. And so it's kind of like the, 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 the training of what to do becomes the worst case scenario. You know, I, I agree with you. And, and teaching de-escalation all over the United States, I try to remind the officers that they can't, when they're looking at a person who uh, has some sort of mental disability or there's some sort of psychomedical emergency there, I say, look, you know, you're not a board-certified psychologist or psychiatrist. You're not a medical doctor, but you need to assess and evaluate based on four basic criteria. Number one, verbal. What is said and how is it said or is nothing said? Number two, physically. How does that individual appear to you physically? Number three, behaviorally. What is that person doing? And number four, psychologically. What kind of cues or presentations do we see that speak to the classic mental disorders? And you mentioned some. Paranoid, schizoid, depressed, uh, manic, bipolar, which is mania and depression. You know, what are the different things that you're seeing? And again, you don't need to be a psychologist, but you do need to have enough basic skills to be able to assess where that person uh, is in his mind and you can't look at them as a normal people as a normal person and expect them to respond to you 
as a normal person. Because if you look at it that way, you're going to get frustrated and you may create a sense of exigency that's unnecessary. And then you want to move in really fast and take control. And that is, in a lot of cases, exactly the opposite thing of what you should be doing. If there's no other person an eminent threat, no third party, no other citizens, no other family members, and you have some level of isolation and containment, then distance and time can be your friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be, you're right, it, you know, a situation can escalate very quickly. And the more information that police officers have, you mentioned that you know, you mentioned that police officers are not psychologists and they're not social workers and they shouldn't have to be. But unfortunately, there have been a number of things that have happened, including the, you know, deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, the lack of services that are available. I hear families of mentally ill individuals all the time say, you know, I call the cops because I know if I take my loved one who's off his medication to the hospital, they're not going to admit him. But if I call 911 and I get a police officer to come, then the chances are greater they're actually going to admit him. So really, in a lot of respects, I think law enforcement officers are really caught between a rock and the hard place. They're being asked to be a lot of things in addition to being police officers. And that is partly, you know, taking care of being first responders oftentimes to the mentally ill. And, you know, and that's such a, I'm so glad that we're having this discussion, and, and I hope we have a lot of police officers in our audience that are listening to these uh, very important words uh, of consultation that you're providing, because this is actually the truth. You know, we are not the world's psychologists or social scientists. We are there trying to respond to society's problems or you know we're not there to create society's problems we're responding to society's problems and we have a modicum of training in this area but certainly you and i would agree that we need to have much more training but then the public needs to have training as well you know it's not the police officer's job ostensibly to make a decision as to whether or not a person needs to be psychiatrically you know uh, evaluated taken into custody we'll make that decision if we're forced to but this is a family decision so you know they kind of just push that stuff off onto us and a lot of times when they could have called us in where we could have de-escalated they wait to the very last minute when the person is acting out and then we're forced to take some sort of action because the person is either gravely disabled they're a danger to themselves or they're a danger to others and those are the criterias in most all of the 50 states to take someone involuntarily into custody for temporary you know uh, 24-hour, 72-hour, depending on the state, psychiatric evaluation. You know, absolutely. And I think, hopefully, I know in California, there's a new Laura's Law, which is trying to really help families as well as police officers by offering more services mandated by the courts for individuals who are not compliant with treatment, who aren't their medication, and it's a diversion program. And I think, you know, when you look at the big picture, you know, police officers and family members both need more help and more support um, so that these situations don't happen. 
You know, that, that's really true. And, you know, I want to switch gears for, for a second. This is all related. But I want to talk about some of the instruments that people that are intent uh, upon committing suicide by cop use. It, you started out where they, uh, they'll they use a gun. Sometimes those guns are loaded, and of course police officers are trained that all guns are loaded, especially when they're being wielded by a person that is, uh, you know, angry, violent, and or uh, suicidal. And the, the people will use uh, guns that are real guns, but they're unloaded. But we're seeing increasingly that we have guns that are toy guns that are being used or even uh, sort of training guns such as airsoft guns that are being used. And this is a very, very dangerous situation for police because these guns function like real guns and they look like real guns, not only from, you know, 20 feet away, but from two feet away. And I've had a number of cases where officers have had to fire upon and kill an individual who was pointing and threatening them with a gun, and the gun ended up being a fake gun. And that's tragic because the media and the activists, the anti-law enforcement activists, uh, are quick to make uh, criticisms about the police and how they handle something when the police only have a millisecond to make a life and death decision. Absolutely. And I'll share a story with you about a case I saw last week. Um, it was an individual. I saw him in prison. So he survived this suicide by cop attempt. And it, it was related to one of your observations earlier in that this was an individual with a pretty lengthy criminal history who was involved in a robbery. Uh, the robbery was seen in progress by a patrol car who was just patrolling the neighborhood. They attempted to pull this person over. This person took off on this high-speed chase, went for several miles, and at the same time was calling 911 and was directly threatening police officers. If you try to pull me over, I have a gun. I'm going to shoot whoever does this. I mean, this was a very serious situation. Um, the police officers followed this man for numerous, several miles, and he ended up running out of gas. Even at the time when he stopped, he was still in his car. He kept making uh, gun, I guess, making his fingers look like a gun and pointing it out the window, et cetera, et cetera. Um, police officers ended up shooting out his back windows, but they basically waited this guy out. And he ended up eventually getting out of the car, laying face down. He was successfully arrested, and there was no gun anywhere in the car. And I was incredibly impressed that you know this was a long, drawn-out, potentially very dangerous situation, and it was resolved without anybody losing life or getting hurt. Well, you know, that's, that's so interesting. Part of what I have to do as a forensic criminologist is I have a background in uh, psychophysiology and human factors. And what happens going back to the whole compression of time and distance is something we refer to as action, reaction, perception, lag time. And the human being can... Uh, you know, the way they respond to what we refer to as life threats is very interesting but fairly consistent. It takes about 56 to 58 hundreds of a second for a normal human being, including a police officer, to realize a life threat. What does that mean? They can hear it, they can see it, they can maybe feel it, and it's going down in front of them. And then 
the police officer has only about 56 hundreds of a second to make a decision as to which of five different responses they're going to take. And those responses are, number one, a defensive response, which would be like fight. Number two, disengage away from the threat, which would be fleeing. Number three, to posture, to yell at them, drop the gun, do this, get on the ground. Number four, we hope they don't have that. And that would be what we refer to as hypervigilance. That would be uh, panicking, confusion, or freezing. And the last one is submission or surrender. Well, the average human being, including police officers, can only do a couple of those things at most in multitasking. But what happens is the individual who is the suicide intent individual will very quickly pull out a fake gun or mm -hmm. something that looks like a gun, considering what we refer to as totality of circumstances, like a cell phone, and they will take a two-handed combat stance in just a split second and scream at them or brandish it in a threatening manner and then the officer, everything's compressed. They have to make an instantaneous life and death decision. They fire, and what you find out is they've got a phony gun or they're holding a dark-colored cell phone. And that is just tragic for the police officer. It really is. It's tragic for everyone. And, you know, when you look at how suicide by cops happen, you really have three different categories of how they kind of coerce police into killing them. So the first one you've talked about already, and that's through the direct confrontation. And this is about 16% of the time. And this is the individual who is absolutely going to pre-plan and carry out an attack on law enforcement. And their sole goal is going is to be killed by this this cop and they can do things like um, these are some of the things i've seen they attack a police station or an officer using deadly force or they confront a police officer directly with a real or even a pretend gun um, they orchestrate a situation where police will investigate with a gun or some other object uh, they'll create a situation such as committing a crime for the sole purpose of attracting police attention so in those situations i think you and i would both agree that that's a, a very serious S by C event, and, and it, it's going to be difficult to intervene. This person is determined to, to kill themselves. However, the rest of them, for example, the disturbed intervention, which is about 20%, is when you have a subject who's acting in this a disturbed manner that, that calls for police intervention without any evidence that he's wanting to involve police in killing him. So this could be the domestic dispute that leads to police intervention and it escalates and then this person begins to threaten suicide or the individual who's under the influence or is psychotic and what this person is doing is they're resisting. They're not complying with what the officer's asking them to do. That's definitely a grayer area and in these situations, I think there's more opportunity for intervention to prevent the SBC from actually taking place. And then the third category is this criminal intervention. When you have somebody who's being arrested for a crime or being pursued for a crime, they believe there's no way out. And they say, I'm going to go out, as you mentioned, in a, in a blaze of glory. Well, that's, you've got, you hit all the, the main topics on that. Joni, let's take one more break and we'll come back and we'll hit up a couple of more cases that you and I have worked. And then let's talk about what 
people can do as police officers and dispatchers and other law enforcement professionals to try to set them up set themselves up for a more successful encounter you're listening to dr ron martinelli and my guest today dr joni johnston a board certified forensic psychologist we're talking about suicide by cop on a thread of evidence The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my guest is Dr. Joni Johnston, a board-certified forensic psychologist, and we're talking about suicide by cop. Joni, let's talk about another one of your cases. This is a case that happened in Medford, Oregon, of a man named um, Andrew Shipley. His sister Elizabeth had called the police because she was really concerned about her brother because she said he was convinced there was this government conspiracy to kill him. And he was beginning to stockpile weapons and he was barricading himself in his house and she was really calling to say he needs to go to the hospital. I don't know what to do with him. And she said he's been talking about this invasion of government forces. Um, so she tells all this to the 911 uh, dispatcher, who we're not really quite clear how much information actually gets transmitted from the 911 operator over to the police officers. But she said clearly again several times that he's preparing to defend himself from this invasion. I don't know what to do. And unfortunately, there must have been some kind of communication breakdown because when the police responded, they responded because of the way she described this stockpiling of weapons and barricading. They sent all these SWAT officers in these military-style uniforms and um, this vehicle that parked in front of the house. Um, everyone on the street was evacuated. And here's this person who's already pretty psychotic. So the man refuses to leave. 
Um, psychiatrists were called in, which was, I think, absolutely the right thing to do. But apparently in the chaos in the organization or lack thereof, they were kind of pushed to the side. Um, and even though some of them were trained in crisis intervention. But the, the key in all this is that even though this man refused to leave his home, he wasn't really responding aggressively to anybody. He wasn't threatening. He wasn't doing anything. And so apparently the police officers were behind their cars and kind of, kind of behind barriers to tend to be safe. So there's a nine-hour standoff that goes on. And at the end of this, the garage door goes up a little bit. There's this antique French military rifle that appears, and there is a shot that's fired. And seven officers then shot him 62 times from several different angles, and of course he was killed instantly. And this is a very complicated situation. It's, uh, you know, on all different levels. You know, I, I absolutely agree with, with what you're saying. You know, and, and it's very hard to make decisions like that. The officers are behind cover. They've got an armored vehicle. But this is an excellent, albeit tragic, uh, example of how quickly things can change. You know, I've said it many times. Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. But if if you're behind cover and we've evacuated everybody and we have isolation and containment, then we can afford to take a little bit more time. But here's what destroys that. When the individual appears and fires a shot, then that paradigm is forever changed in an instant and the officers are going to return fire. And that's exactly what the individual wants, and that's how he's choreographed his death act. You know, I agree. And I have to say, I don't think there's, I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody pointing fingers at police in this situation. And as a matter of fact, a grand jury cleared the officers of wrongdoing. I think the breakdown and the jury actually, I think, wrote a letter or to the police officers kind of just saying, hey, is there a way to improve the communication, to do something different in the situation? Because you're right. I mean, there have been situations, as we both know, of mentally ill individuals shooting and killing police officers. And that oftentimes doesn't get, we don't see that in the media as much. So we have to always be safe. And that does change the the paradigm when somebody opens fire. No matter what kind of barrier you're behind. No, you're exactly right. As a matter of fact, I I don't have the statistic with me, but uh, I use it in my presentations on how to respond to suicide by cops. And I tell the officers that the statistics clearly show, and I think they're almost two to one, that people that have mental disorders kill police officers twice as often as uh, convicted felons do. So the police officers have to really be very, very careful when they're dealing with people that have mental disabilities or people that are just so depressed and they're suicidal that they are unpredictable. And, of course, that's always exacerbated if they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Yes. And, you know, if if there's anything to learn from this case, you know, if there's anything that could have been done differently, and we could argue whether they're actually was, it might be the fact that here's this family member. I mean, could she have called EMT to intervene? Does this person have a mental health provider who can intervene? This is clearly a psychiatric emergency. 
Oh, I, and it no, needs I, I to agree. be dealt with by psychiatrists or mental health professionals. Well, you know, and I agree. And you know, one of the things, Joni, that I'd like to do, and we're definitely going to bring you back on a thread of evidence, because of something that you said in the very first segment of this show, and that was you alluded to our broken down mental health system, not only in the state of California, where you have your private practice and where I worked for many years, but throughout the United States, it's just disgraceful. And we have these ticking time bombs all over the country. And once that fuse is lit by some sort of precipitating event, there's no way that somebody is going to put the bomb out before it explodes. So, you know, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions going into the training side of this program. And I'd like to hear from a professional that has your experience on a couple of tips that dispatchers and police officers should pay attention to if they should come in contact or have to respond in some way to a suicide by cop intent individual. So the first thing, as we've said, is to make sure that you have as much information as possible from that 911 dispatch. And we need to make sure our dispatcher is asking those questions. So training for our you know, operators and dispatchers, I think is absolutely the first step and a critical step to make sure that officer who's responding, um, you know, has as much information as possible. The other thing, and I'll talk about it just briefly because you asked for some specific steps for officers on the scene, but I am a huge believer in these psychiatric emergency response teams. And I think more communities are recognizing that it's not fair and it's not effective to have just police officers out there making these mental health decisions. So they're partnering, um, you know, police officers with mental health professionals who can actually go out at the time. So having said that, I think if you, if you go out, obviously there needs to be some kind of a decision model. I think that needs to be taught just in terms of, again, checking for safety. You've already alluded to several of these, checking to make sure there aren't third parties who are in danger, checking to make sure you aren't particularly in danger. And then I think it does become a matter of doing the things that we would do when anybody is upset to the extent that we can establish rapport with that person, to the extent that we can say the right thing, meaning we can't fix that person's mental health crisis. That is not our job. But our job, hopefully, is to take an emergency in, a, in the community and get it into treatment, get that person to treatment. So to the extent that, again, that we can, you know, de-escalate that situation, say the right things, show empathy to that person, try to understand where that person's coming from, um, to try to get that person to take baby steps toward de-escalating things, putting the gun down, putting the knife down, not going toward that person, um, spending extra time with that person, focusing on the outcome again. It's really important. You mentioned earlier, hey, we're not mental health professionals if, as police officers, and we can't be. Understanding the cause of someone's mental illness could help us make those decisions. But it does become secondary when there's a gun or a knife that's putting other people at danger. So to the extent, again, that we can can assess a situation, make sure that there's nobody's in danger, and then try to give that person extra time, talk in a calm voice, talk in a quiet voice, get that person engaged. And by empathizing with that person, once we do that rapport establishment, it significantly increases the chances that that person is going to take a different strategy. You know, I agree with every, sing every single thing that you said. Listening, empathizing, paraphrasing, 
and also uh, getting inside their head a little bit. Be patient when you can be patient. Have a good sense of your situational awareness. Remember to isolate and contain and simply talk that person down if they can be talked down. But it is about patience. But on the other hand of it, in the balance of things, be very careful if the person now exacerbates the situation by speeding things up and trying to force you as a police officer to make a life and death decision. But that is why we need this additional training. Hey, Joni, I'd like to completely change uh, directions, and I'm sure that people are fascinated about what you do for a living. So let's talk about Dr. Joni Johnston and how you got involved in the field of forensic psychology, a little bit about what you do for a living, and then we'll talk about your suggestions on how people can enter into your field of forensics? Well, I'll try to give you the short answer. I, I know I've, we've talked a little bit before about the fact that I was absolutely fascinated with the um, Charles Manson case at age 14, but we might not want to stop and start there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, lot, a lot longer than we might, our audience might want to hear. But I've always really been interested in the, in the extremes in human behavior, both in it from the negative way, I guess, or the bad things people do to the, the heroic things that they do. And I went to graduate school with a, and got a degree in clinical psychology because at that time there was really no such thing as a forensic psychology degree but I really became interested in looking at the intersection of law and psychology and what that's translated into particularly over the past 10 years is doing things like investigations for companies investigations when you have um, uh, a violence risk assessments for example I do a lot of work right now in the CDCR for, for mentally disordered offenders who are up for parole and helping evaluate if that person's at risk for future violence in the community, if they need, to, if they're stable. Um, I do quite a bit of uh, insanity plea evaluations and competency to stand trial, um, and suicide uh, investigations. So I really do focus at this point. I've done a lot of different forensic work, but I really focus on the criminal arena, which is really the area of most interest to me. And what type of education did you need, Joni? To, that, that puts you in the position where you are today as a very successful private practitioner? Well, I got my doctorate way, way, way long ago. <laughs> um, and you really do need that, I think, to be a, a practicing psychologist, at least here in California. You can call yourself a therapist or a family therapist or a family and marriage counselor with a master's degree, but to call yourself a psychologist in the in California, you have to have a doctoral degree. And then I've done a tremendous amount of education and training on my own in the area of forensics. And then um, I also, because I was doing so many investigations, decided several years ago to get my private investigator license. So I have both of those, at, you know, currently. And you do some workplace violence assessments, don't you? Which I think is a, a fascinating part of your practice. I do. I do. I really do. I, I really realize that just, you know, so, just like managers in an odd way, like police officers are often dealing with these issues of employee conduct and employee mental illness. And so I've done a lot of um, training as well as investigations in the area of workplace threat assessment, as well as helping managers and employees to understand how do you recognize the signs that someone might become violent and what do you do? 
Well, you know, this is so interesting for me to hear you talk about this because your wheelhouse is probably the most diverse wheelhouse of any forensic psychologist I've ever spoken with, Joni. So I'm absolutely excited that you're on a, a, a thread of evidence. Hey, uh, just as an aside, what was the topic of your doctoral dissertation? It was actually looking in colleges at threat assessment and looking at threats and, and how people um, engage in those threats and how do we diffuse those threats. So I've obviously had an early interest in violence and preventing violence and dealing with violence. And that's something I continue to try to do. And talk to us a little bit about your private practice. My private practice is really exclusively a forensic practice at this point, and it really does involve primarily assessments, working with defense attorneys, working with prosecutors, working with, um, you know, custody officers in jail, looking again at um, risk factors, looking at making recommendations about parole, making recommendations if this person's ready to be released in the community, and investigating uh, misconduct either outside of a prison or inside of a prison to see if mental health might have anything to do with that offense. And give us the name of your company. It's pretty simple. It's um, Dr. Joni Johnston, and the website is drjonijohnston.com. And have you got a telephone number that people can I do. It's um, Let's 858-583-3306. I also might want to mention, just because I do so many, I write so many articles that people, I get a lot of, a lot of good feedback on, is I do a law and psychology blog for Psychology Today called The Human Equation. And it has a lot of articles on some of the things that we're talking about. Well, I'm just so excited to have you on the program, and I want our listeners to know that I've uh, recruited you to be a member of our multidisciplinary forensic death investigations team. I think you're going to be phenomenal addition to our various practitioners and scientists and uh, homicide investigators that investigate death and suspicious circumstances that cause death every single day. I'm going to try to continue to recruit you to our brand new startup company, ETC Forensics, our new online uh, college, so to speak, where people can learn all about forensics and forensic science and investigations and maybe someone out there will become the next dr joni johnston joni one more time give us the name of your business and how people can get a hold of you it's um, drjonijohnston.com and the best number to reach me is 858-583-3306 or you can email me at joni at drjonijohnston.com and are you going to come back on a thread of evidence? I would love that. <laughs> what a fantastic <laughs> program. i tell you what, I've done a bunch of these, Joni, and this to me has been one of the highlights of a thread of evidence. I, I thank you so much for being on the program. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, Dr. Joni Johnson, a board-certified forensic psychologist on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.